Well, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, I am Jonathan Hodgkin, Professor of Genetics in the Department of Biochemistry at Oxford, and it is my pleasure today to introduce the speaker, Professor Peter Donnelly. Uh, Peter Donnelly is a mathematician by training uh, and took his first degree at the University of Queensland and then did a field here in Oxford, Balliol, studying mathematics, which he took in 1983. And since then, he uh, took, worked in a variety of places around the world, including Michigan, Swansea, London, and Chicago, uh, before, in fact, coming back to Oxford in 1996 as Professor of Statistical Science, which is a post that he still holds. But in addition, since 2007, he has been Director of the Wellcome Trust Centre for Human Genetics. And genetics is one of the areas where mathematics and biology overlap very fruitfully and productively and strongly. And uh, as Peter says, it's nice that there are really nice abstract mathematical problems uh, that just happen to have uh, serious genetic applications. So we're really fortunate that such a powerful mathematical talent has been seduced into uh, studying problems in the real world, and in particular, those in uh, human genetics. Um, and that is the subject of his talk today, which is, as it says up there, the genetics of common human diseases. Peter. Jonathan, thanks very much, and uh, thanks everyone for your interest. So as you've heard, I'm somewhat uh, schizophrenic and actually uh, unusual in Oxford, not in that sense, but in the sense of having two different <laughs> academic firms. Uh, some of my life I'm in, based in the Department of Statistics, which is in the science area, and most of the time these days I'm at the Wellcome Trust Centre for Human Genetics, which is on one of the university's medical campuses uh, up near Headington, near the Churchill Hospital, if you know where that is, but two or three miles east of the centre of Oxford. Uh, and what I want to do today is to try and give you some sense, if uh, it's not something that you're aware of already, or to try and uh, give you a few more details, if you are, of the excitement in human genetics at the moment, and in particular in our understanding of the genetics of human diseases. But as, as Jonathan said, my academic roots are in mathematics and statistics, so I hope you learned some useful things about genetics, but I'll give you one good uh, social tip today. You'll find yourself at this kind of event at various social functions. Uh, a good chance to meet people that you haven't seen for a while and to meet new people. But every now and then you find, and it's one of those things that I'm sure happened to you when you were in Oxford and still does, you find yourself stuck in a situation at a drinks party or something when you'd rather not be talking to the person you're talking to and there are various uh, things you can try. I'll give you one good piece of advice. When they say to you, what do you do? You should reply, I'm a statistician. <laughs> because what will happen is that they'll suddenly develop a consuming thirst or they'll see someone in the corner of the room they haven't seen for years and years and years they'll be off and you'll be free <laughs> and it's one of the uh, challenges of, of our life in mathematics and statistics to try and give some sense of what we do to others there are various stat uh, aphorisms about statisticians uh, one of them is that statisticians are people who like working with figures but don't have the personality skills to become accountants <laughs> And another, uh, also somewhat self-deprecating and, and based on the shyness of many mathematicians and statisticians, is the rhetorical question, how do you tell the extroverted statistician from the introverted statistician? And the answer is that the extroverted stat statistician looks at the other person's shoes. <laughs> 
And I'd never, in the days when what I was doing was principally mathematics and statistics, I never found it very easy to explain what I did. Uh, in those days, as Jonathan said, uh, much of my work was to do with using mathematics to study evolutionary models. Uh, and, and I found that hard to explain, but I met someone who was going out with them. They were quite interested. I was working in America at that stage, coming back to Britain. She was working at the BBC. And uh, one of her girlfriends said to her, well, what did your boyfriend do? And she'd obviously listened when I tried to explain what I was doing. So she paused for a while and said, Oh, he models things. <laughs> well, the colleague got very interested at this point and said, what does he model? And she paused for a while and said, genes. <laughs> <laughs> he models genes. <laughs> and that's what I've been doing uh, since then, so I want to try and give you some sense for that. As I said, it's a, it's a pretty exciting time in genetics for reasons that I'll go on to explain, but I'll just start by reminding you of a broad difference. There are a set of human diseases where the... The diseases are typically very serious, but the genetics is simple. For any of these diseases, and examples of cystic fibrosis and Huntington's disease, remember we inherit one copy of our genes from our mother, one copy from our father. Depending on how the disease works, if you inherit the wrong version of the gene, for in some examples if you inherit one wrong version, Huntington's is like that, in others you need to inherit two wrong versions, then you get sick. So those, there are many of those diseases, but they're typically quite rare. As I said, Huntington's cystic fibrosis, muscular dystrophy, and so on are examples. And over about the last 20 years, the big breakthroughs first happened in about 1989, we've gone a long way to understanding which bits of our genome, which bits of our genetic information are involved in those diseases. And there are many thousands of conditions like that, as I said, all typically very serious, thankfully all quite rare, which are all due to changes in just a single part of our genome. And many of those, or most of those, we now understand well in the sense of knowing uh, which bits of the genome are involved. There's a further step, and I'll talk a little bit about this uh, as we go on. There's a further step in terms of using that information to try and develop new treatments and therapies. So as I said, for many of those so-called simple or Mendelian dis disorders, the genes have now been identified. We understand lots of the genetics fairly well. In contrast, for almost all the diseases that are common in humans, heart disease, stroke, many of the cancers, we've known for an awfully long time that there's a genetic component. Diseases tend to run in families more often uh, than for individuals, or to put that another way, if you know that someone has a, a parent or a brother or a sister who's affected by one of the common diseases, they'll be more likely to have it than someone whose family don't show the disease. So we've known through that running in families that genetics have been involved. We've also known for a long time that unlike the, the simple disorders I was talking about, Genetics isn't all of the story. It's absolutely clear for all of the common diseases that although genes play some part in what happens, part of the story is to do with our environment, our lifestyle, and risk factors. It's a blend of nature, genetics on the one hand, uh, and nurture our environment broadly on the other. So that's been clear for a long time, but what we haven't known until fairly recently is which bits of our genetic material make someone more likely to get heart disease, someone else more likely to get schizophrenia, to protect someone else against, say, breast cancer. And we've tried pretty hard over, I think it's fair to say, about the last 10 or 15 years in genetics to unlock some of those secrets, by and large without much success until very recently. You may not have uh, been aware of that if you just follow these things through the newspapers. In the early years of this decade, for example, there were repeated announcements that someone had found the gene for this or the gene for that and so on. And we can now see most of those as false dawns. Uh, for, for reasons I'll come back to, we thought we were making progress there, but we weren't. 
But over about the last uh, 18 months or two years, the picture has changed substantially, and that's what I want to try and give you some sense of today. So this is a timeline from the early years of this century. And as we go, I've only got one pointer, so I hope people on the uh, left can, uh, on the right can look over there. So this is 2001, and in 2001 there was a gene discovered. So I'll tell you about a bunch of genes today. They all have deeply unmemorable names. <laughs> You're off the hook. There won't be a quiz or anything when you leave. So there's a gene called PPAR gamma, uh, which was associated in 2000 with type 2 diabetes. People who had one variant of the disease uh, of the gene were a little bit more likely to get type 2 diabetes. The form of diabetes people get in about middle age. There's a separate type of diabetes, type 1 diabetes, I'll talk about, which is the one that affects people when they're younger. So before about 2000, a handful of genes had been known. Uh, one was discovered in 2000 for type 2 diabetes. In 2001, there are two genes, or in fact, uh, one gene and one area of the genome that doesn't seem to have any genes in it, associated with Crohn's disease. Crohn's disease is a form of inflammatory bowel disorder. I'll say a little bit more about that as we go on. Uh, 2003, there was another deeply unmemorably named gene, KCNJ11, associated with type 2 diabetes. Uh, 2005, uh, a gene associated with age-related macular degeneration, eye problems that people have uh, typically when they're older. Complement factor H was the gene. And then in th 2006, things started to change. In early 2006, this gene, TCF7L2, was associated with diabetes. All of the other uh, four genes here were discovered very late in 2006, so less than two years ago from now. So the picture I want you to get is that up till then, when you were a handful of things, that was uh, late 2006. That was the first few months of 2007. Uh, that was the next few months of 2007. That was a little bit more of 2007, and then I got rather uh, bored with making these slides. Or rather, <laughs> people who helped me make the slides uh, got bored. Uh, but what you should have a sense of is having, having tried really hard since about the mid-90s to unlock the secrets of the genetics in common human diseases, we'd got nowhere until less than two years ago, and suddenly the logjam has been broken. So as I said, that was a picture until about a year ago. Here's a cartoon, a different way of showing things. So each one of these uh, is an ideogram of one of the 23 human chromosomes, and I've now just marked on them uh, positions of genes associated with different diseases. This is already six months out of date. The current position is that we know across about 70 or 80 diseases, we know over 200 of the genes involved, common diseases, uh, in contrast to a couple of years ago where we knew a handful for three or four diseases. So science is one of the two major uh, general academic science magazines, and they got so excited about the developments last year that they picked this whole area as their research breakthrough of the year or their breakthrough area. The, the idea that we finally come to understand or at least start to understand the way in which human genetic variation was associated with human diseases. Uh, as I said, it, it's now the case that we know more than uh, 200 or so associations across about 100 diseases. And that, I think it'll be clear in the next few years, that's just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, there's a huge amount of research effort now going into this. Uh, I'll, I'll come back to it in a moment. Uh, but there are reasons why we've made the breakthrough now and we understand what they are. Uh, so we've learned how to do things. We'll keep doing it uh, the right way. Just to give you an example, so for type 2 diabetes, that's the, the, the type that affects people in middle age or later middle age, we now know 19 different loci. So locus is just a part of the, all the classical scholars will know this, but locus is just a part of the genome uh, which we've associated with uh, disease. So we know that 
if we read this little part of your genome, if you have this variant uh, at one of these 19 positions, you're less likely uh, to develop type 2 diabetes than if you have the other variant. Uh, there are 19 loci associated with height, and the, the disease on which we've made the most progress is Crohn's disease, the form, one of the two forms of inflammatory bowel disorder, uh, and there are about 30 associations now. And as I said, just the tip of the iceberg, the Wellcome Trust, uh, who funded quite a lot of the research that I'll talk about, have recently committed another 30 million pounds to study 120,000 samples, so I'll tell you how we do these studies in a moment, across 27 different conditions, many but not all of them diseases and some other interesting uh, phenotypes things we can measure. Why do we do this at all? Well, I think most people in the field would say there are two reasons. The first one is that in spite of huge amounts of effort, we know remarkably little about what actually goes on with any of the common human diseases. The hope through genetics is that it gives us a whole new foothold, a whole new way of tackling uh, the disease, a sort of bottom-up approach, a in contrast to much of science, a hypothesis-free approach. So if we take type 2 diabetes, there are big questions about that that we don't uh, currently understand. People have tried uh, and made progress, but not huge progress. So how do we do it via genetics, or how might it work via genetics? Well, we forget anything we know about biology. We do one of the sorts of studies I'm about to uh, describe. We learn some of the genes that are involved. Then we can say, OK, I know in advance that if you have this variant at this particular gene, you're more likely to get sick than if you have that one. Then we say, what does the gene do? We try and understand how that gene works and how it might play a role in the disease process. So I think most of us in the field would say the biggest reason for doing the studies and our biggest hope is that it gives us a new foothold, a new way of understanding the disease process. And over time, we should be able to exploit that information to develop new treatments, new drug therapies, and possibly new ways of, of preventing the disease. And I hope you'll come away with a sense from this that it is a pretty exciting time. We've made the first steps on that path. But you should also go away with the idea that it's not a quick uh, fix. It'll be many years, uh, in most cases, before we can translate the sorts of findings that, that those of us at the research end uh, developing, those sorts of findings, into new treatments and uh, new treatments. On the other hand, it's already the case that we're learning new biology. I'll give you a couple of examples. In, in the case of type 2 diabetes, there's long... So type 2 diabetes is to do with a shortage of insulin getting to the relevant bits of your body uh, in middle age. And it's not my field, so you're not allowed to ask me any hard questions afterwards, but I'm about to tell you everything I know, which is that there's been a lot of debate for a long time about... So insulin's not getting to some of the tissues that need it. There could be two reasons for that. One of them is that the bits of the body, the beta cells which produce insulin, aren't working as well as they should be. So there's a sort of production side which might be going wrong. And the other possibility, which has been a subject of fairly intensive debate, is that the insulin's there, but the tissues that need it have lost the ability to take up the insulin. And that's been a controversy in type 2 diabetes for a long time. And we think, so I, I said there were 19 uh, already established loci to do with type 2 diabetes. Uh, quite a few of those have to do with beta cell function, the function of the cells which produce the insulin. So that's a pretty strong pointer that that production side is a key part of the disease process. In uh, the case of, so another disease, breast cancer, it's been, although breast cancer is a common disease and the genetics are complex, there are two genes which were discovered about 15 years ago now, called BRCA1 and BRCA2. So their genes, that's like the, the simple disease that I talked about, their genes where if people have a mutation, they're at very, very high risk of breast cancer. 
And those are genes which are both involved in what we call DNA repair pathways. When cells divide, they make a copy of the DNA, so the new cell uh, has some DNA, and sometimes that copying goes wrong and the cell's quite clever. Nature's been quite clever. It gives us mechanisms for checking and correcting uh, any errors of copying. And BRCA1 and BRCA2 are genes involved in that process and the mutations which result uh, in very strong risk of breast cancer for, for a very small proportion of women, uh, those mutations affect that DNA repair pathway. We now know about eight uh, genes where there are variants which have typically small effects on, on breast cancer, and I should say, I'll come back to this, but, but all of the findings I'm talking about, and I've talked about these 19 loci for type 2 diabetes, it's not like cystic fibrosis. It's not that if you have the wrong version of the gene, you get sick. It's that if you have the wrong version of the, of the gene, you're maybe 20% more likely or 30% more likely to get the disease. So the effects are much more subtle. So in breast cancer, as I said, there are the two examples, BRCA1 and BRCA2, where it's well known, they've been known for a long time. If people have mutations in those genes which cause them not to work so well, they're at very high risk of, of breast cancer, and they're involved in this DNA repair process. We now know about uh, eight genes which, where there are much more common variants, so more people have them, but their effect on risk is less. They typically increase this risk of, of disease by 10 or 20 or 30 percent. They're all, or many of those, are actually involved in growth functions of cells. So that's a whole new side, which we're only, again, breast cancer isn't something I'm an expert on, but we're only at, at the very beginnings of trying to exploit in terms of taking forward to learn how we can use that in, in treating and, and potentially preventing disease. So one of the reasons for doing this, as I said, is to learn more about the diseases and in time develop better treatments. But there's a different side, and I'll come back to this at the end of my talk. Uh, as we learn more and more, we could measure, so it's possible to, to take a sample of my DNA, for example, from a, a swab uh, on the inside of my cheek, collect some saliva which will contain DNA, and do an experiment, and check my genetics, say, at those 19 positions uh, that we know affect my risk of type 2 diabetes. <coughs> And by seeing what risk variants I have, I might be at higher risk or lower risk of type 2 diabetes than, than someone else, or, or I might be at higher or lower risk of type 2 diabetes than I am if you checked uh, my risk for, say, heart disease. So the other thing that uh, we're starting to be in a position to do is to make more refined predictions of risks for individuals on the basis of their genetics. We're miles away, and never will, I think, get to the stage where we'll read someone's DNA and we'll say they'll get sick with such and such a disease on the 15th of July, 2023. <laughs> it's not like Gattaca. Um, but it is the case that we can look at someone's DNA and say they're at increased risk for this disease, decreased risk for that disease. We're, we're starting to understand the genetics half of the nature and nurture uh, questions. So let me just spend a little bit on telling you how we do these experiments. It's kind of, the, the idea is very straightforward. It's kind of tempting to say it's not rocket science. It's clearly not rocket science in the sense that it's biology rather than uh, <laughs> physics and space travel. It's also not rocket science in that the basic idea is very simple. And here's what it is. We take uh, a sample of people who are sick with the disease that we're thinking about, say type 2 diabetes, and a sample of, of healthy people. And then we just measure them at lots of places uh, in their genome. We measure genetic variation. So modern experiments would measure maybe half a million positions in our DNA. And you look at each one of those in turn, and you say at this position, well, in the DNA letters, I'll come on to this in a minute, some people have a T and some people have an A. At that position, is one of those more common in the sick people and the healthy people? 
Now, in most positions, it isn't, uh, and you might get an inkling why statisticians, in spite of their bad uh, street credibility in the public image, why statisticians are of interest because you're comparing lots of things, and you want to try and see the real signals in the data rather than some noise. But we, we look for positions where there's a difference in frequency between one of the variants in the sick people and the healthy people. And why is that interesting? Because if you argue the other way, if there's something which is more likely to make you sick, if it a particular letter in your DNA, a T, say, at this position is more likely to make you sick, then that should be more common amongst the sick people and the healthy people. Conversely, if the other variant, the A, is protective in some way of the disease, that'll be more common in the healthy people than the sick people. So the kinds of studies we do are of this type. We take, I'll talk about a particular experiment in a moment, we take typically thousands of people with a particular disease and thousands of healthy people. We measure their DNA at lots and lots of places and we look for these differences. And, and in case I mention the terminology later, the variants are often called alleles in uh, genetic terminology. The sick people are called cases and the healthy people are called controls. So the current technologies measure our DNA in a partic particular way, or rather look at particular parts of our DNA. <coughs> the information in our DNA is encoded by four chemical bases, they're called. And it's the order in which those bases occur that conveys the genetic information. In exactly the same way that when we're reading a book, it's the order in which the letters are put down on the pages in the book that make words and, and, and tell us what the book is, is saying. So at most, here's a string of our uh, DNA. The four chemical bases happily start with four different letters, A, G, C, and T. So we can think of a small stretch of our DNA. Maybe it looks like this. Here I am reading along one chromosome, and there's a G followed by an A, two T's, A, C, A, T, T, and then a G. That's one chromosome that, if I measure in the population, other chromosomes in the population may have something different, in this case, an A at that position. So that's a position which is called a single nucleotide polymorphism. So single uh, nucleotide, we're looking at one position. Something's polymorphic in genetics if it varies, uh, but SNP is much easier to say, SNP, pronounced SNP. Uh, than single nucleotide polymorphism. So there's a position which differs. And just to give you some sense of this, uh, if you looked at your DNA and compared uh, one of your chromosomes with the chromosome of the person sitting next to you, you'd see about one difference every thousand letters. And remember, you've got two chromosomes. You've got one from your mum and one from your dad. If you compared one of your chromosomes with the other one, you'd see one difference in about a thousand positions. Actually, here's a scary thought. If the person sitting next to you, don't take this the wrong way, but if the person sitting next to you were a chimpanzee, uh, rather than an alumni of this august institution, then uh, your DNA and theirs would only differ at about one place in 100. Uh, so there's actually quite a lot of similarity between humans and chimpanzee, even more, of course, between different people. We don't know what those differences mean. Uh, most of them, we think, are thus just there by chance and don't have a big effect. But the ones we're looking for are the ones that might predispose some people to particular diseases or alternatively protect them from it. We think there are about 10 million positions. So our DNA altogether, I showed you a small stretch of, of, of a DNA sequence. Our DNA altogether consists of 3 billion, 3 followed by 9 zeros, uh, of those letters. And we get 3 billion uh, letters from our mum and 3 billion letters from our father. We think there are about 10 million places, these SNPs, uh, where both of the letters are moderately common, or at least not too uncommon, more than about 5% in frequency. And so in principle, you, you need to check all of those to look for places which make some people more likely to get the disease and others uh, protected against the disease. But it turns out that uh, nature or evolution has been helpful to us. There are strong correlations. 
So what I mean by that is it, it turns out that if you look in human DNA, if there's an A at this variable position and a T at this variable position nearby, there'll often be a C at the next one. So that if you know some of the positions, you can predict the others. And those correlations are there for reasons we understand. I won't go into them, but they're to do with the evolutionary history of the variants which arise. The technical term is called linkage disequilibrium, but it is just uh, a correlation. And the nice thing about that is it enables you to, although there are 10 million variants altogether, if they're highly correlated, you don't need to check all of them. You just need to check a subset of them. And that's why the experiments I have been describing, and we'll say a little bit more about, which measure, say, half a million positions, actually see quite a lot of the variation that's there. And there was a big international project called the HapMap, the haplotype map, which catalogued and characterized these patterns of correlation in different human problems populations. So in, to give you a sense of the history, uh, in 2001 they announced the first draft of the human genome sequence, so that was uh, reading, think of it as reading one version of the three billion bases that make us up, or really it was a rough draft of that, they finished it in, in 2003. Then the HapMap project, uh, you think of the human genome project as focusing on the things that we all share, the HapMap project looked at these differences between different people in different parts of the world and the correlations so that when we came to do the experiments I'm about to describe these these association studies we could do it without having to check all 10 million variants we could check about half of it so I was involved in a big uh, study for my sins in fact I led it something called the Wellcome Trust Case Control Consortium it was a collaboration UK-wide of about 50 different research groups two or three, 200 scientists in general People from the clinical side, uh, disease clinicians working in hospital, experimentalists and people like myself who are good or at least like to think we're useful in analyzing the data, uh, aimed at understanding human disease uh, and the role of genetics in human disease. We undertook three different experiments, and I'll focus on one of those, uh, over the kind of timescale I was talking about, between uh, early 2005 and, and early 2007, doing these association studies, genome-wide association studies, and the main experiment was seven, looking at seven common diseases. And remember I said that we've, we started about 10 years ago in trying to understand the genetics of human diseases, and we got nowhere for a long time. Well, we thought we were going somewhere, and, and the newspapers got excited, and then we find that there were false dawns. What's changed? What's changed is the ability to read those SNPs. So remember, a SNP is one position in the genome where on some chromosomes there'll be, say, an A, and on others there'll be a T. Give you an idea of costs in uh, the... About five years ago, it would cost a dollar, the US dollar, to measure one position in one person. Two or three years ago, those costs were down to a cent or so for one position. And then uh, people developed a new technology, we call them chips, and they take advantage of much of the technology that uh, computer chips use. So they're small uh, things physically about this kind of size, which simultaneously measure half a million positions. And whereas it cost a dollar to measure one position in one person uh, five or six years ago, you can now measure half a million positions in one person for three or four hundred dollars. And it's that huge change in the uh, technology, massive advance in, in the way in which we can read genetic information cheaply, which has for the first time allowed us to do really large studies. As I said, the Wellcome Trust Case Control Consortium is the one that I was involved in. Uh, we studied seven different diseases, so bipolar disorder is what's often known as manic depression, heart disease, Crohn's disease, I've mentioned it's a form of uh, bowel disorder, hypertension, high blood pressure, 
arthritis and the two types of diabetes, type 1 diabetes, which affects young people, and if you suffer from that, you have to typically inject yourself with insulin, and type 2 diabetes, which affects people in, in middle age and late middle age. And our experimental design was to take 2,000 sick people with each of those diseases and 3,000 healthy people, or at least uh, randomly chosen people from the population, and we chose those from two different groups. Uh, there's a set of individuals who were born in a particular week in March 1958, and they get there are television programs about these called Seven Up and Fourteen Up and so on, which have followed them through time. Uh, those people were followed initially by social scientists trying to understand uh, changing social patterns and their experience as a cohort moving through time. And about ten years ago, biomedical researchers realised that they were a potentially valuable research got back in touch with the individuals and asked whether they'd be happy to donate their DNA for research studies, and many of them were. So they're a commonly used source of, of controls. Now, any one of those may happen to have heart disease or schizophrenia or bipolar or whatever, but most of them won't, so it works uh, reasonably well. And then as part of our study, we collected blood from people who were giving blood to the uh, blood donor services in the UK, and we studied 1,500 of those. And we deliberately, I won't spend too much time on this, but we deliberately chose two different control groups. Remember I said what we're looking for is a difference between the sick people and the healthy people. When you see that, you'd like to think it's because of something that's associated with the disease. But if there was something systematically odd about the way you chose the controls, maybe that's what you're seeing. And the advantage of having two different control groups, we can compare them with each other. They should look the same, and indeed they did, and that was reassuring. So here's... Uh, a summary, remember what we did in each disease was to measure 500,000 positions. So uh, if you look along, let's pick this one for the moment, heart disease. As you look along there, there are 500,000 dots. Uh, it's not that your glasses are uh, fading, they're pretty close together. And <laughs> on the x-axis is their position on each of the 23 human chromosomes. And on the y-axis, so upwards, is a measure of how different at that position the frequencies of the types were between the sick people and the healthy people. If you come from a statistical background, uh, so what's plotted here is minus log 10 of the p-value. If you don't know what that means, don't worry. Uh, going further <laughs> up here, to drop that into the, if just saying you're a statistician doesn't get rid of the guy or the person you're stuck with that drinks tonight, try talking about p-values and that. <laughs> so uh, the point is that it, here we are walking along the genome uh, in Crohn's disease, and there's a position here where these green dots, they're, so there are lots of positions near each other where there are big differences in frequencies of variance between the sick people and healthy people. Okay, Crohn's disease had lots of them. Heart disease, I'll come back to the, this example later. There's a really striking finding on chromosome 9 of very big differences between uh, cases and controls in the frequencies of particular variants. One of the uh, postdocs involved in the analyses used to refer to this to the, uh, as the, he was American, as the million dollar plot. Uh, that's sort of good, but it, with the dollar falling down, it rather underestimates. To give you a sense of scale, our study, which involved about 17,000 people, cost about eight or nine million pounds. And we're lucky, very lucky in the UK, having the Wellcome Trust as a funder, who can uh, fund large studies if they're convinced, or you can convince them they're worthwhile, and actually, crucially here, act fairly quickly to take advantage of new technological advances. So as a quick summary, I won't talk you through all of the details. Our initial study and uh, various follow-on work by the disease investigators involved has, has found about 30 novel associations initially and then combining our results with others in different parts of the world who have done similar studies has led to another 15 or so. More so of those, remember my slide with lots and lots of uh, new findings, 
about a third of those, I think it's fair to say, come out of this uh, big UK study. Interestingly, uh, very few of the places we found were on anybody's radar. So what we used to do to do these studies, we couldn't check all of the genome. We had to think hard about the biology of the disease and say, well, I think this little bit of the genome and that little bit of the genome and that bit might be important, and just look there. So now that we've been able to check the whole genome, we can go back and say, how good were we at using our expertise to pick places to look? And the answer is, we were appallingly bad. Uh, and that's quite interesting as well uh, in terms of novel understanding and new things that we're learning about biology. So the old technologies, it was a little bit like, so if you think of the stretch of the genome out between uh, Land's End and John O'Groats, it was a little bit like looking under five or six street lights along there and hoping, or having a torch, and hoping you could shine it at the right bit. The advantage of these new chips where we can measure lots of the genome is that you can search systematically throughout that road for fairly small changes. And I'll come back to this. Another major surprise was the finding that the same part of the genome seems to play a role in a bunch of different, and in some cases, quite disparate diseases. So we published our main study in the journal uh, Nature in, in 2000. As I said, it was a collaboration between about 200 <coughs> scientists. Uh, it was quite successful, attracted a reasonable amount of attention, and, and won some prizes. Oops, we published, uh, this is the statistical side of me, we published a, a methods paper in Nature Genetics, which was also uh, fairly well received. Happily, I think, although this is always scary for a scientist, uh, the findings attracted some attention in the public press. So the Independent got very excited about it. They devoted their front page and all of page two and three and their leader. You all know you'll have read this, and that's why you're here, I'm sure. Um, although, interestingly for us, although we got lots of the front page, we got to share it with Tracy Emin, uh, who many of you will know is a rather controversial and avant-garde uh, British artist. Uh, the Daily Telegraph had a different uh, take. Uh, so again, we got some nice coverage, but we shared it with the English uh, football team. So as Jonathan pointed out, I'm Australian, not uh, English. I find this rather touching. These were the heady days when Britain had beaten Estonia 3-0 uh, <laughs> in, in qualification for the last uh, European Championships. They were back on track at that point. The train spectacularly came off the rails, but maybe it's working again now. I'll spend a little bit uh, trying to talk you through the science, give you a sense for what we learn and what we haven't learned. So this is, remember I said uh, earlier there was a particular green spike for heart disease on chromosome 9. This is zooming in on that position. So as you move along here, uh, we're moving along chromosome 9. This scale is millions of bases. So between here and here is a million uh, bases, so nucleotides, and 3 billion in the genome. So it's a small proportion of our DNA, but there's still a lot of information in there. And if you just concentrate on the black dots for now, uh, this is like the earlier picture. A dot's high on the y-axis if at that position, so each one of those dots is one of these SNPs that we measured, there's a big difference between the sick people and the healthy people. And so what you see is a whole lot of uh, background noise here and here, and then a smallish region, in this case one or 200,000 uh, of these positions, where the signal jumps up enormously. And that's what we want to try and understand. So the first thing you do, if you were us, is to try and see, well, what genes are involved in this region, and what might they be doing? There are two genes involved, again, really unmemorable names, CDKN2A and 2B. As I said, they weren't on anyone's radar for heart disease, although we found out when uh, we and, in fact, others at the same time found this region, we found out, uh, you know, you look them up and there are 
wonderful resources for doing this, they are very well understood by cancer geneticists. So these are two genes that play a crucial role in cancers, and they weren't on anyone's radar for being involved in heart disease, and it's still the case that we don't understand the connection, but there's clearly something pretty intriguing going on there. Uh, I, I don't have a picture of it, but actually also in this region, or right at the right-hand side of this region, in our study, and others found the same thing, there's a signal for variation involved in type 2 diabetes. That's quite an interesting uh, region, a lot still to go. Uh, here's another one, so this is CDS Crohn's disease. So here's a bigger region of chromosome 5. The reason I'm showing it is, in fact, here's a region where there are no genes at all. So what might be going on? What we're coming to learn, and I think it's probably the case, is that it's not changes in genes which are significant here, but changes in the way in which genes are turned on and off. So genes produce proteins. There's machinery inside our cells which reads the genetic code, turns it into proteins. Uh, there's separate machinery which decides, as it were, when to turn a gene on and off and how much to turn it on, how much protein to produce. Obviously, the cells in your toenail, for a lot of their life, are doing different things from the cells in the retina of your eyes. They've got the same DNA information, they just have to read different bits of it at different times. Uh, and so what we probably think is going on, and here's an example, is that the variation we see here doesn't actually change the protein that a gene produces, but it changes when and how much a gene is turned on and off. And it's probably those kinds of subtle changes which are resulting in, this, in the subtle variation in disease risk. So here's, by contrast, a region, this is about a million uh, DNA positions wide, where there are 13 or 14 now. And one of the big challenges in the field, and I'll say a tiny bit about this uh, in a moment, is to drill down in these regions and try and work out exactly what the variation is. Remember I said there are correlations. So somewhere in here we think there's probably a variant, a change, which actually matters. If you have an A in that position, it causes something different biochemically from if you have a G. We may or may not have measured that in our experiment, but remember I told you about the correlations what's happened is that there are SNPs nearby which are correlated. So if you have the A at the SNP which matters, you might have a T nearby. If you have a G at the SNP which matters, you might have a C nearby. And we're measuring the T and the C. So there's quite a lot of work yet uh, throughout the area, and, and here's a challenging example, to drill down and work out exactly what's causing the biological functional change. Here's another region on chromosome uh, 16, which we found initially associated with type 2 diabetes. Uh, our group, or the, the type 2 diabetes experts in our group, collaborated with a number of other studies, and they were actually initially a bit disconcerted when they compared uh, notes with their colleagues. Most of the findings agreed between three major studies that were going on in different parts of the world at the same time, but not this one. So that was initially worrying. Uh, then, I quite like this story because it shows the virtues of happenstance. One of the risk factors for type 2 diabetes is body mass index or obesity. People who, like me, who are heavier than sh they should be, uh, are at higher risk of type 2 diabetes. Now, everyone knew this, and the other studies were quite clever. They didn't want to get confused by that. So in one of the studies, they compared healthy people with sick people for diabetes in a way which matched or controlled for body mass index. So they take people in a particular range of body mass index and do the comparison and so on. In one of the other studies, they only looked at, at uh, diabetics who weren't overweight, and neither of them saw this signal. And in fact, we now know that this is a signal not primarily predisposing people to type 2 diabetes, but affecting body mass index. Hmm. So if you have two of the wrong variants here, I don't know in my case, I'd like to think I do, if you have two of the wrong variants, you're on average about half a stone heavier than someone who has two of the right variants. Uh, that we 
we're pretty excited about this study. It was the first uh, known example of, of genetic variation that affected weight. So we published it earlier than the main study, and it attracted some attention. Uh, various things, as you can imagine, in the popular press. Uh, even the Financial Times got involved, not only on their front page, that doyen of serious British reporting, uh, but their leader was very positive about the fact, as are we, that uh, we released our results as soon as we could. We took a deliberate decision not to try and patent any of them, that it was in everyone's interest to get them into the public domain as soon as possible to allow other researchers to pursue the findings. And in, in fact, in this case, uh, other researchers in Oxford had put together another piece of the puzzle in working out exactly how this gene might be involved in obesity. So they were various of the headlines, but this is my favorite. <laughs> so the other thing I mentioned was that we were surprised to find, although the picture is becoming more common, that the same region of the genome could be involved in different diseases. This is a pretty busy picture, so apologies for that. The green squares, are, they're like the ones before, so moving along the x-axis this way, we're moving along a particular chromosome, chromosome 18 in this case, around a gene called PTPN2. Uh, as we move along in this direction, here's a region where there's a signal. The green squares are the signal for Crohn's disease, and the blue crosses are a signal for type 1 diabetes. And what you see here is the same variant, here it is for Crohn's and here for type 1, the same variant pre seems to predispose people to both of those diseases. That was really surprising. Uh, I didn't know enough about the diseases to know whether uh, I should have been surprised, but the experts were. Type 1 diabetes and Crohn's disease are both what are called autoimmune disorders. They're both uh, somehow or other a key component of disease pathophysiology is problems with the immune system, uh, getting confused about recognizing what's, what's yourself and what's foreign. Um, so that was known, but there had been no suspected uh, similarity between disease mechanisms. And yet here's a bit of the genome where the same variant is predisposing people for both of those. We now know a couple of examples of this. This is one uh, of the early ones we found which was striking. Uh, there are a couple of other examples of parts of the genome predisposing to autoimmune diseases, overlaps between arthritis and type 1 diabetes, uh, type 1 diabetes and psoriasis, uh, celiac disease, uh, which is intolerance to gluten. Again, there are overlaps across those diseases. Here, the same variant predisposes you, or increases your risk of both type 1 diabetes and Crohn's. There's another part of the genome where the variant which predisposes you to type 1 diabetes protects you from Crohn's disorder. And we don't understand that, but it's pretty tantalizing. Even more tantalizing, we now know two regions of the genome where uh, there are variants which in some cases, so some variants in those regions, predispose people to prostate cancer. Other variants in the same regions predispose them to type 2 diabetes. And quite why there should be a connection between prostate cancer and type 2 diabetes, no one knows. Uh, but as you can imagine, having noticed this, people are trying pretty hard to understand. It had been known for a long time from uh, epidemiological studies that amongst all the cancers, the incidence of prostate cancer, so compare the rates of this cancer, prostate cancer, colon cancer, uh, lung cancer, and so on, between type 2 diabetics and people who don't have type 2 diabetes, those cancer rates are the same, except that it had been known for a while that prostate cancer seemed to be less common amongst type 2 diabetics. And again, we don't understand that, but genetics seems to play some part. Uh, so there's another thing I'm not going to ask you uh, questions on before you leave the room, but uh, here's a summary of, of some of our main findings. 
So on the left-hand column is the disease. Let's just look at this one. This is uh, the, the place on chromosome 9 I told you about that affects risk of heart disease. Uh, these bits are sort of coordinates in geneticist language. They tell you whereabouts on the genome we are. Uh, this is the name of the SNP, the position at which we see the strongest difference between cases and controls. Remember I told you the genes had unmemorable names like PTPN22 and KCNJ11 and so on. SIPs have got even less memorable names, so this is RS1333049 to its friends. Uh, this is a measure of the strength of the signal. I want you to look at these numbers for now. This is a, a way of measuring how someone's risk is affected by which variant they have. And for this variant in heart disease, it turns out that if you have two copies of the wrong variant, the unhelpful one, it almost doubles your risk of heart disease. Yeah, maybe it increases it by 60 or 70%. That's one of the strongest uh, effects we've seen in genetic studies. But just to give you some sense, that's comparable uh, with the effect on heart disease risk of high levels of cholesterol or, or cholesterol levels. So it's an example where uh, genetic variation has a major effect. As I said earlier, most of the things we're discovering, the consequences of having the wrong genetic variant are, or of course we've got two copies of them, but the, the consequence of having one additional copy of the wrong variant increases your disease risk typically by 10 or 15 or 20 percent. So it matters, but it's absolutely not like the simple diseases where if you have the wrong variant you get sick. It's also clear, and you should have got the sense uh, from some of the things I've been talking about, that for any one of these diseases, unlike cystic fibrosis where there is one gene involved, we know where to look for cystic fibrosis. If you have a mutated version of, if you have a mutated version of that gene inherited from both parents, you get cystic fibrosis. So for any of the common diseases, it's clear that there are a very large number of genes involved, the effect of any one of which is pretty small. And actually, we can measure, without knowing how it works, we can measure the way genetics impinges on this. You can take, uh, you can do the following. You can say, if I know that someone's brother or sister has the disease, how much more likely are they to have the disease? compared to an, an ordinary person in the population where I don't have information about relatives. Uh, and that's something we can measure. And <coughs> a decent component of that will be because of the shared genetics between close relatives, although some of it could be a shared environmental uh, background. I'm just wondering, um, uh, we're talking, obviously with the, with the crone, you talk about something's recessive and you need two copies, um, sorry, with the cystic fibrosis, but with these ones where you're increasing your risk by 20 to 30 percent, is that 20 to 30 percent if you have two wrong copies, or you know, 10 percent if you have one, 20 percent if you have two copies? Uh, it's a great question. We're not certain yet, uh, but it seems to be the case that the copies act well. To a first approximation, the copies act independently. So if you have one extra copy, it increases your risk by 20 percent, uh, and if you have two extra copies, it'll increase your risk by roughly 40 percent. So for reasons I probably won't go into too much. The real picture is probably more complicated than that, but that's what it looks like at the moment. Thank you. Um, there are lots and lots of genes involved, but the kinds of, although we're pretty excited about what we've found, it's clear that a lot of the story remains unresolved. Although there are 30 loci known for Crohn's disease, that explains a part of the shared risk in families, but not all of it. And another big challenge in the field is to try and work out uh, where the other genetic components are coming from. So looking forward, as I said, uh, there are a lot more of these studies underway. I'll talk about another one in just a moment. Uh, there'll be an explosion. I think what we now learn, that, that rapid growth on my first few slides, we'll see that as the tip of an iceberg. And hopefully over the next five or ten years or so, we'll make huge progress initially in the genetics and then in time in our understanding of, of the disease processes. 
We were fortunate in our original study uh, to get funding from the Wellcome Trust to follow that up, and the kinds of things we're doing. So resequencing is resequencing and fine mapping are about drilling down in those regions of association to try and work out what the what the actual causative variant is, and hence to learn some of the relevant biology. And then there's another the type of variation I've talked about these SNPs. That's where some people have one letter in their chromosome and some have another. There's a completely different type of genetic variation called copy number variation where what differs is whether you have a, a stretch of DNA or not. Or maybe some people have three copies of this stretch of you know, 3,000 bases uh, and some have two copies. There are early indications that that plays a role in disease susceptibility as well and we're undertaking a big study in the diseases uh, that I talked about to try and, to try and understand that better. The Wellcome Trust also funded, uh, as I said, a whole series of new studies. There's a new consortium, uh, un rather unimaginably called WTCCC2. Uh, and just to give you a sense, many of the conditions we're looking at in that, and for my sins I'm also leading that, uh, are diseases, strokes an example, uh, ulcerative colitis is the other type of inflammatory bowel disorder. Some of them are, aren't uh, diseases. We're looking at uh, genes involved in reading and mass ability in kids, which promises to be interesting. Uh, and also, there's a whole area which is to do with the genetics of how our bodies react to drugs, which is potentially really important, and there's a study like that uh, to do with statin response uh, in the next series of studies that we're looking at. So those studies have just started, and we hope that in about six months or eight months' time, uh, we'll have learned quite a bit about these diseases as well. So where does this leave us? You should have a sense of a pretty exciting time. As I've tried to explain, we've learned a lot, but there's a lot that we still don't know. We want to drill down and find exactly which changes are responsible. That will help us understand the biology better and develop better treatments. We don't yet know how known environmental risk factors interact with the genetic risk factors. So I told you we found somewhere on chromosome 9 where variants can make someone almost twice as likely to get heart disease. We also know smoking is a risk factor for heart disease. We don't yet know how those two things interact. If someone has the wrong variants here but doesn't smoke or the wrong variants and does smoke, do the risks add up? Uh, does one of them count? We don't know that, uh, and it's something that's obviously pretty interesting and important. We also don't know how, but it, again, it's one of the most exciting uh, parts of the field. If we knew about the genetics, should we treat people differently? You know, I said there are lots of different uh, genes involved in, say, type 2 diabetes. It could be that if you have this gene not working properly or not regulated properly, uh, you should have this set of treatments or drugs for type 2 diabetes, and if you have this gene not working, you should have something else. And there's huge hope there, but we're in the very early stages. I think there are challenges more generally for us, for society. Uh, it's possible now, I'll come on to this, it's possible just to send off your DNA and get someone to check your SNPs and to tell you whether on the basis of what we currently know you're at higher risk of this disease or lower risk of that disease. What do we think about that as individuals and as society? Uh, would I want to know? It's an interesting question, I'll come back to it in a minute. Uh, Separately from whether we want to know as individuals, and we'd find that information interesting, uh, there are questions of whether and when this should be part of more routine healthcare. I think it's absolutely clear that at some stage in the medium term future, five or ten years, the kinds of genetic testing that I've been talking about will be a routine part of at least some aspects of healthcare. What's not clear yet is the pace at which that will happen and which areas it'll be helpful and which it won't be so helpful. Uh, big issues with insurance, uh, so we're quite happy as a society to have some people pay more for insurance because they live in this postcode and some pay less because they live in some other postcode. What's our view on genetics? There's a feeling that somehow or other that's not 
quite as much of your fault as your postcode, uh, and maybe we shouldn't discriminate <laughs> on the grounds of genetics. Uh, and in fact, in the UK, the insurers have a, volunt a voluntary moratorium. So all the insurance companies in Britain have agreed, uh, initially I think until 2011, they've agreed to extend that uh, by some years, not to either ask or use any information about genetic tests that individuals have. In America, they've passed a bill which prohibits discrimination of any kind on the basis of genetic information. There are issues of privacy, so I might want to know what my genetic uh, risk factors are for different diseases. I probably wouldn't want my employer to know. Uh, I probably wouldn't want the police to know. But again, there are live issues that we need to think about uh, following on from this. I, again, I think a general sense that over probably a five or 10 year horizon, this will be much more routine. It'll be much more routine than it is currently for the healthcare system or uh, individuals to have access to this kind of genetic information. And there are real challenges about uh, privacy. So I mean the challenges of the type that we can debate, not the challenges of the kind that someone's left the wrong disc in the back of a car and gets stolen, <laughs> uh, and so on. And there are also issues to do with social attitudes. So suppose in the future we know that there's a particular variant, a little bit like uh, smoking currently, so, but suppose we know there's a particular variant which predisposes someone to a particular disease unless they improve the amount of exercise they do or watch their diet or something. Well, if they know that in advance and they don't make the lifestyle change, what will our view as a society be, and different sides of society will probably take different views, on the extent to which we should feel sorry for them or worry about healthcare and so on. At the moment, uh, I think we think of lots of the afflictions which affect people as being sort of random acts of God and so on, uh, and of course they are, but as we learn more from genetic information uh, and people have the chance to make lifestyle choices to reduce their risks, how will we as a society think of the people who engage in that and the ones who don't? Not up to me to say whether they should or they shouldn't, but I think there are a lot of questions there. So I want to finish by uh, talking about what's come to be called uh, consumer genomics or personal genomics. There are a bunch of companies uh, to whom you can uh, send your credit card details or, or over the internet give your credit card details. They'll send you a kit into which you, a little tube into which you spit and you send it back to them. They'll analyze your DNA at half a million or a million positions and then they'll give you information. They'll tell you uh, what they think you're, on the basis of what's currently known and the genes, they, the, the bits of DNA they measure, how that affects your disease risk. They'll also tell you, if you're interested, about your ancestry, what proportion of your genome comes from uh, this part of the world or that part of the world, and so forth. <coughs> some of the companies do that and some don't. Uh, and it's something which has attracted quite a lot of interest amongst professional geneticists, uh, worried about whether we should be happy this is happening or concerned. I think it's absolutely clear to everyone that if it is happening, it's important it's done in a way which is scientifically responsible uh, and that people who are interested are told in advance what they will learn and crucially what they won't learn and also afterwards they help to understand uh, the risk factors. And it's currently the case, even though we know 19 uh, low so for type 2 diabetes, it's currently the case that we're still not very good at predicting on the basis of genetics whether someone will get the disease or not. Each one of these contributes a small amount to risk, so we've learned something about the picture, but not in a way that we can say, this person will get the disease and this one won't. Someone's slightly more likely still. But I think there's a different way of, of thinking about some of these challenges, and here's one way of, of addressing that. We're not very good at predicting risk for a particular individual, say me, uh, for a particular disease. Because what will happen across these 19 bits of the genome, uh, my parents will have given me the, the good variants at one position and the not so good variants at another and the average variant somewhere else, so most of us will end up average, or 
that's my definition, but most of us will end up average. On the other hand, for any one disease, there'll be a small proportion of people who got really unlucky. And they happen to have a preponderance of the risk variance. And their risk can be increased quite a lot. Here are figures uh, for three different diseases. Uh, so if you happen to have been unlucky genetically for Crohn's disease, and you're in the top 5% of the population, this is based on uh, uh, populations with genetic characteristics of UK populations, your risk of the disease is increased by about five or tenfold. If you're in the top 0.1%, it's, in, it's increased about 20-fold. Crohn's disease is pretty rare anyway, so that's not as worrying as it could be. Uh, type 2 diabetes and breast cancer, the changes in risk are less, but the diseases are much more common, so actually it's, it's more worrying. If you're in the top 5%, you're two or three times at higher risk of uh, type 2 diabetes and about double the risk of breast cancer. So the average risk of breast cancer for a woman is about 1 in 10 or 1 in 12. So doubling that risk takes it to 1 in 5 or 6, which is really serious. And if you're in the top 0.1%, uh, the risk go up even more. So the way, at least one way I find it helpful to think about personal genomics is that, as I said, for any one disease, uh, we're not very good at predicting and risk will be about average. But if we think about the 50 diseases we now know something about, or the 100 diseases we will know something about, just by chance, everyone will be unlucky for one or two of those. Hmm. But we don't know what they are. So from my point of view, the attraction I could see from uh, personal genomics is not to specifically predict my risk for type 2 diabetes or heart disease, but to tell me what are the diseases where I've been dealt the wrong hand genetically. Now, with our current state of knowledge, some of those, there'll be something I can do. If it turns out to be a cancer, breast cancer, for example, well, not in my case, but uh, breast cancer or colon cancer or something, there's screening you can do, and you'd like to think or hope that people who are at higher risk would be more uh, vigilant about doing that screening regularly. In other cases, the advice will be what it is currently, that I should exercise more and I should be careful about my diet and so on. But it allows us the possibility, personal genomics allows us the possibility to find out where our particular risks are, in many cases, there'll be things we know about, because we'll know of diseases that have run in our families. But that won't always be the case. And in fact, there's an interesting academic question about whether the genes we're currently finding, there's, there's evidence that I won't go into, that all of the variants I've talked about so far, they're not the ones which are predominantly involved in clustering within families. But that's other stuff that we're yet to find. So this could still be interesting. I'll stop there. Uh, thanks for your interest. As I said, a lot of the work I've talked about is from this big consortium, the Wealth Trust Case Control, Consortium, it involved about 200 scientists, about 25 principal investigators, so leaders of it, and if you read the fine print, happily, five or six of them are for Oxford. But thanks very much for your interest. Thank you.